Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Steve Brown. Steve is the CEO and president of Nelson, Canada's leading educational publisher for over 110 years. You likely know Nelson as that textbook company, but after more than a century of publishing physical materials, Steve has launched their digital transformation from paper output into an immersive digital learning platform, which they call Edwin. And land sakes, Steve jumped into this without even having a background in education nor in publishing. Welcome, Steve, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Good morning, Andrew. I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. I'm actually in my office today, which is uh, right at the intersection of the DVP and uh, the 401, so I can look out at the lovely traffic every day. <laughs> Excellent. I'll call you, but I'm never going to leave my home office again. And and on that note, post-COVID, is your team working from the office or from home or in a hybrid situation? We have a hybrid situation. We actually um, moved offices. Uh, we'd been in the same building for over 50 years. And during COVID, we moved offices into this new building. So we tried to create an atmosphere and an environment for our uh, members of staff to want to come back. So we are hybrid, but I would say most days we have in excess of 60 to 70 people here in the office. Well, uh, it's nice to be able to see the people you're working with in person. Yeah, I think it, it, it adds such a different dynamic in terms of creativity and team building and so forth to get people back together. In fact, we had a party uh, when we opened the office and it, it was heartwarming to see people's faces just hadn't, having not seen each other for two years. It was uh, it was quite something. Well, let's start by asking about Nelson. Are you a public or a private company? And are you a Canadian company? We are a Canadian company. Uh, we were founded, as you said, uh, actually in downtown Toronto in um, 1914. Uh, actually, the same week as the First World War started, ironically. Um, we are Canadian. We've been a business in here in Canada since 2014. We've been through both public and private sector. We are private at the moment, um, but we've been around a long time and we have been dealing with the educational community from coast to coast to coast in Canada for, as I said, 110 years. Well, when you talk about the educational publishing industry that you compete in, what was Nelson and what is Nelson today? Well, how long have we got? That's a, I mean, that's the story. Nelson originally was founded in Edinburgh in Scotland, and it was actually a Bible publisher. Thomas Nelson moved from um, Scotland to Toronto, uh, I think around uh, 1910, 1911. And we were a Bible publishing company for the first couple of years. And then Nelson Education was founded in 1914. And that was really with the onset of a Catholic school system here in Toronto needing learning materials. And because we were trusted coming back from that historical Bible publishing industry, we became a, a publisher of educational materials for all disciplines, not necessarily just uh, religion. And then that's grown over the you know century plus to us producing learning materials uh, for all areas of education. Um, so we were a textbook company. And when I came in, uh, my focus was transformation because I don't necessarily believe because companies have been around a hundred years, that gives you the right to be around another century. And in fact, many companies and many people obviously die at a hundred. 
So I wanted to ensure that Nelson was relevant to the students of this country and around the world for the next century. So we've been through an area of disruption and most disruptors come from outside of an industry, but I decided we would disrupt ourselves, which was a pretty big bet. A lot of people thought I was betting the farm at that time, but it's been a successful implementation to what we are today, which is really an education technology business. Well, you really were betting the farm because after 100 years of operation, you essentially had to blow it up and rebuild it. Yeah, exactly. But sometimes you said, you know, about me coming from outside the industry, sometimes ignorance is the best attribute for change because you're you're not stuck in that mindset of that's not how we do it. Because when you don't know how and why we do something, it's easy to look at it with a new lens. Um, and then that's what I did. I, I wanted to ensure that the methodology of delivery was relevant to students and their interaction with the learning materials was relevant, just like every other aspect of their life. And, you know, a lot of people internally thought that I was making big mistake. And one of us was going to be right. I bet on me. And that's turned out pretty good. But I tried to explain to people that, you know, paper, print, and bind of a textbook, we never owned a paper mill. So why are you concerning yourself about the delivery mechanism? That really is just the methodology of delivery. The content remains the same. We're a content company at heart. Now we're a technology content company. Content is king. Now, your overarching mission at Nelson is digital transformation. Quite literally, the shift from traditional print materials to digital access, will printed education materials eventually be entirely replaced? I don't believe so. You know, I've I've got a history in in other areas of of a business that people said the same thing. And and physical is collectible. Some students, some people prefer physical, whether that's textbooks or journals or any any literature. And other people like to listen to it. Other people believe that you know you can read it in a in a digital format uh, it's really the consumer's choice what what i believe will happen and what we're seeing is largely it will be replaced by a, a more immersive digital interaction with content but at the early years at kindergarten to grades one and two that kids need books kids need to understand that tactility so i don't think technology will ever replace it totally and I do believe that some people will always have a, a, a focus that they want to have a digital version or they want to have a physical version. That's not our choice. That's the consumer's choice. And that brings us to Edwin. What is Edwin? Pure magic. Edwin is a, an immersive platform. And there are many platforms out there in education. But Edwin, unlike any other, is not specific to a discipline. There are a lot of numeracy apps or literacy apps or geography apps. But the, we wanted to build a platform that was about all your learning all in one place. And it has text-to-voice, voice-to-text. It has a recommendation engine that says, oh, Andrew, I see you're reading this. You may like this. So it's really about driving student engagement. It's also multidisciplinary. So if you search, for example, something about water systems, you might get biology, geography, mathematics, all the different sciences. So it allows you to go cross-disciplinary, and that today speaks to students because 
whilst you're still learning, you know, when you think about every other aspect of a student's life, whether it's social media or, or, or it's um, recorded television or a, an app like Netflix or, or uh, Video Prime, they say, you're looking at this, you may like this. So it gives them that ability not to feel ostracized when they're in an education environment because it does mirror every other aspect of their life. Where when you say to a student, turn to chapter 7, page 17 to 24, Kids today look at you like, what are you talking about? They expect an interactability, and they also want to understand that, you know, if you're if you're being immersed in content, then you're really learning. And and I often say, education's not dissimilar to golf or tennis or whatever it may be. The more you do it, the better you get at it. So let's make education enjoyable for kids and not take them back to those days when, you know, so many parents say, you need to study more on your math, just like I did when I hated school. I mean, what? how, how is that enticing students to engage? So we wanted Edwin to be multimodality. So whether it's videos, manipulatives, reading text in a digital format, voice, the text reading to you. Um, so whatever your learning style is, we wanted to get drive student engagement and we're seeing unbelievable efficacy studies now with the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of kids using Edwin every day that shows that through greater engagement, their learning outcomes are going up. And that's really our mission. And you wanted Edwin to be simple and user-friendly. For example, you insisted that there be no user manual needed. The iPhone comes without a user manual. Why should Edwin need one? That is a quite literal statement that I made in in the kickoff meeting when we put our tech team together. And I said, it has to be so intuitive that there is no manual. And that is a real departure from what most educational platforms are. It's very intuitive. It's very easy to use. And we've seen that um, being one of the main reasons it's been embraced so well by teachers and by students because it really does mirror other aspects of the life. So it's very intuitive. Uh, it's very easy. And you see different learning paths from students. We see different teaching practices from teachers across the country, how they use Edwin. But the choice, again, is theirs. I'm, I'm a consumerist at heart. And products live and die by the acceptance of the consumer. And in this case, the consumer of knowledge is the student. And the deliverer of knowledge is the teacher. So let's make it easy for both. And they'll continue to invest their time and hopefully enjoy their learning journey. Absolutely. It makes sense. And, you know, another rule of thumb of yours has been that information should be never more than one mouse click away. And that makes sense as well. Yeah. You don't want to have to search. But if you think about your learning journey as either value or waste, Having to think about interoperability, how you find it, is waste. So the more time you can find in learning and not thinking about how you operate, Edwin, the greater your time to add value in your learning. So let's not waste their time with multiple clicks. So everything is literally one click away at any point. And again, that that drives the engagement and the learning outcome. Let's please at this time go all the way back, get the Steve Brown story. With that lovely accent, I'm going to assume you are not a native Torontonian. 
Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. My history's a, a, been a, an interesting one, to say the least. I've got a couple of people who've been pushing me to write a book. I don't think that that's ever going to happen. But I was born in the UK. I grew up in Southport on the northwest coast, 20 miles, uh, 21 miles north of Liverpool. I'm an avid Liverpool football club supporter, uh, which is great because today as we're recording this podcast, they're sitting on the top of the Premier League, which I'm delighted about. I started off uh, working at a, a golf club. I trained as a chef. I studied wine and got a very sought-after uh, recognition in the studies of wine, predominantly French wines. And I did that for four years. And I used to work six days a week, often seven days a week. And on the other side of the bar, or sitting in the restaurant, were these wealthy industrialists who seemed to be in there all the time, drinking expensive wine and eating nice food and playing golf two or three times a week. And I was probably working 130 hours a week. So one day I said to one of the, the members, a gentleman by the name of David Lanagan, who was a CEO of a UK company, I told him I was going to switch sides and I wanted to join industry. So I ended up joining a British public company that was multidivisional, divisions in uh, bedding and furniture, uh, industry, and automotive. I started to work in the automotive division, worked my way to the top, and then I joined a German public company which allowed me to move around the world. So I've lived in Korea. I've lived in Germany and France. I lived in San Diego for a while and in Detroit for a while. And so I was 20 years in the automotive industry. And then I was making a speech one day and a Canadian public company called Sinram, which were the largest deliverer of movies, music, and games, whether it be from, his, in his history, um, vinyl, into 8-track and then CDs and DVDs, then digital. I joined Sinram in 2009 and ran that business where we delivered um, and produced CDs and DVDs and digital files for all the major movie studios, TV companies, record labels, and games companies. And I ran that company successfully, and we ended up taking the business from a, a public company for over 30 years to a private company, then we tried to do an acquisition of one of our competitors, which was blocked by the Justice Department for monopolistic reasons. So we ended up selling the business, breaking it up into three pieces, successfully transacting that business, and it all still exists today under different ownerships like Sony and Technicolor and so forth. Um, and I was going to take a couple of years off at that point when I was approached by Nelson to uh, take over as CEO which I actually declined three times um, over a period of months. And then they talked me into coming and I looked at it. And what I saw at Nelson was a, a huge, beautiful bowl of vanilla ice cream. But it was just that. It was vanilla. We were a textbook company. We'd always been a textbook company. We were, you know, we're a Canadian heritage business. We're well recognized by all the governments across every province as well as the federal government. But I looked at it and thought, Vanilla is not enough for society today and not enough for students today. So eventually I, I was talked into joining and I joined and we've been on this journey of transformation ever since. So it's a an eclectic and um, interesting journey that led me here, to say the least. Eclectic to say the least, for sure. 
Now, with Nelson having a century of learning materials delivered in a physical format, the legacy issues must have been daunting. Did you have to drag Nelson kicking and screaming into this uh, digital transformation, or was everyone willing to align with your game plan? I would say total alignment would be a a mass exaggeration. There's actually nobody at the executive level who was on my team when I joined. So I, I switched out the whole team. And it's not that they weren't great people, because they were, but I believed that the changes we needed to make needed to be made quickly and needed to be made with total buy-in. And having a skill set of a business that's a century old didn't necessarily align with the skill set that was required for the disruption we were going to do. So we, we brought a lot of new people in. We still have a lot of people. I, I would say we've still got 60 or 70 people who were here when I joined because their roles didn't change. People like editors and publishers, uh, a lot of our authors. But then in other areas of our business, it's changed dramatically. We have a a technology office that's in California that had worked for me when I was in the media business. I literally went out there uh, with our uh, senior vice president now of the group, and I asked him, could we put the band back together? Because we used to build apps for... Universal Pictures or DreamWorks Animation for Apple. So to me, the technology was irrelevant. It was it was a, a method of delivery. So whether we were delivering companion apps for Avatar for 20th Century Fox or we were putting learning materials in the app, the technology is about making it as seamless as possible. So we did do a lot of changes. We've made a lot of changes. Uh, I'm fortunate to work with some of the smartest people in this industry as well as any other industry. We've got an amazing tech group. We've got people who've been building learning materials their whole life. And if you were educated in Canada, I can tell you you were educated on Nelson materials. And now I'm I'm very comfortable in saying that's going to be the same for the next century. I won't be around that long, but certainly we've made the right moves. Well, clearly this was disruption with a capital D. Steve, another significant business decision was made in March of 2020, when after more than 100 years, Nelson retracted from the post-secondary market to focus on kindergarten to grade 12 education and technology. Why was this done? Isn't the post-secondary education market a, a massive opportunity? Yeah, there were two reasons for that. And it's somewhat contrarian, and time will tell over a long period of time whether I'm right or wrong. But one thing I know to be true is one of the statements that I made actually the day I joined in my first town hall meeting is we have to be a world-class organization. And it's difficult to achieve world-class when you've got um, a dual focus. We had dual teams and um, it was a very segregated business when I joined. And when I look at the value that uh, post-secondary students see in their learning materials, the textbook one was too expensive. So for the first four years, all I did year on year was bring the prices down. And two, every year sell-through would go down of post-secondary undergraduate textbooks. So if there's a thousand people taking a course, we would see maybe 500 of those kids buying the textbook. One was because they were too expensive, and two, a lot of those students could either get them on the black market, get illegal copies, share them with friends, get photocopies, and so forth. 
And the cost of producing those post-secondary materials was so expensive that every year it became more and more difficult to get a return on investment. And we are a business. So I decided that we would exit that market and we did sell our our business to two other companies who are still in business today in post-secondary. But I also believe that on the longer term, generationally, the value of an undergraduate degree is being eroded. And as an employer myself and as a CEO, you know, I look for other skills when we're hiring people, not just, you know, where did they get their undergraduate degree, you know, such as problem solving, uh, collaboration, critical thinking. So I think that over a period of time that the value of a post-secondary degree is being diminished and therefore the market would diminish. And I actually do believe that we're going to see many universities across this country and other countries around the world actually, from a physical standpoint, from the campus, going away. I don't believe you're going to see that from the big tier ones like University of Toronto, McGill, UBC, and so forth. But we don't need 150 universities in Canada. You can still have 150 university entities But those degrees can be done online because if you've been to university, you know, 50% of the reason kids go to university is that bridge from adolescence to adulthood, deciding when they're going to go. Now, they don't need to be on campus to be able to get a degree. So you could see these campuses go away in totality and the universities are in an office block writing the courses and, you know, grading kids stuff that they're doing online. So... I didn't want to be part of that business that I believe is going to go through massive contraction. So we decided in 2020, much to the chagrin of many of my former employees, they couldn't understand why I was making that move. Um, But I believe it to have been the the correct move and it allowed us to be singular in focus on K-12 education, which if you think about it, will never go away. Because it's not only about education, it's societal in nature. Parents need to get back to work. Kids need to learn how to socialize. So K-12 education will be here forever. Where post-secondary, I may be a little bit uh, contrarian and a little dystopian, I believe in a large percentage could go away. Well, I'll say one thing. You're a guy that likes to make big bets. That's clear. Let's talk about some business issues and your leadership philosophies. You've described your end users, students and teachers, as customers or consumers. Why do your colleagues in education get mad at you when you use those terms? I think because it is, again, I'm using this word a lot today, it's contrarian. You know, consumerism really decides everything. And our business is producing learning materials that the consumer decides whether they're better than our competitors. And the consumer of knowledge is the student. People can say they don't like the terminology or the nomenclature, but that's true. And if the if the student does like it, that they will engage more in their learning. And the measure for success in in education is the outcome. Not necessarily the grade, which is somewhat historic, but their understanding, their consumption, their ability to be able to consume that knowledge and learn from it, which will give them life lesson skills to go on to lead. Another area that I've always said is my legacy will be measured, I believe, in GDP. 
we've got 5.3 million students in Canada. If our education level increases and those students are smarter when they graduate and they go into the marketplace of employment or starting new businesses or science or whatever it may be, and we see a, an increase in GDP generationally because of the, the, the leadership methodologies and the knowledge transfer that we've done, then I'll consider that I've done my job. And that was one of the things when we launched Edwin, I said the true outcome will be measured by GDP in the future. You know, a lot of our competitors are still very focused on the historics. You know, you mentioned me liking to make big bets. I want to I want to create history and write history, not read about the past and study history. And I guess that's a fundamental difference. Information must be true, tried, and trusted, especially in the delivery of educational content. Search engines like Google, are they a reliable source for safe content? No, not at all. When you look, and that was one of the things that, you know, when we built the safe sandbox of learning, which is Edwin, everything that was in there and everything that goes in there every day and it's refreshed every day with new materials has got to be aligned to the curriculum, which is a provincial measure, but it's also got to be true and factual. But also, if you look at the um, the descriptors, the nomenclature that's used in society, think about how that's changed over the last five, six years. You know, if you talk about gender identity, what was once acceptable politically in society, let alone in learning, is not acceptable today. So with a digital platform like Edwin, we're, allowed, we're able to change those descriptors all the way through. And one, one of our missions here is to, to really educate about things like truth and reconciliation. And if you think about the descriptors in truth and reconciliation, even in my short time, so seven years, what was acceptable to describe indigenous communities, First Nations, First Peoples, six years ago is not acceptable today. So we're able to make sure that we that we can be that safe sandbox. So if a teacher's in a classroom with 27 kids and they need to spend most of their time on any one day with one student who's really got struggles for some reason or other, to be able to leave the other 26 and know that the materials in there are true and factual and those kids can tumble in that learning and all be going through a learning journey while they concentrate their time on little Johnny who's having a rough day for whatever reason. That's true and safe and trusted. But if you're talking about the internet, I mean, that's driven commercially by search engine optimization. Wikipedia, the more people who go in and look at something and change it, you could have incorrect information. There was recently a case where on Orange Shirt Day, Truth and Reconciliation Day, as it's now known nationally as a holiday, there was a teacher at an Ontario board, not too far away from here, I won't name the board, a, a teacher out of the goodness of his or her heart went onto the internet and tried to download a material that was produced by AI on the history of Indigenous peoples in Canada. That document had absolutely appalling descriptors in there, and it ended up in Indigenous kids in that particular board contacting their parents. They all left the board that day, and, and now there's a lawsuit about it. So when you're talking about education or information or disinformation, if you can't create equity and honesty in a classroom, what chance have we got in society? 
So that's why we've got to be so focused on being correct. And that's the brand that I, you know, have the, the pleasure of protecting every single day. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Steve Brown, please check out the more than 200 additional episodes available anytime. We got University of Toronto Press's Jessica Mosher, literary agent and poet Brian Wood, financial guru Ellen Roseman, and authors Scott Morrison and Randy Drusen. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to torontolegends.ca. Now, Steve, you brought up AI. Today, there is a huge focus on the integration and adoption of AI and generative AI. Yep. What's the difference between them, and how important are they in the continued development of the Edwin platform? Well, we've had AI involved with Edwin for a long time, and it enables us to be flexible and agile in the speed we produce content. However, um, when you talk about AI and generative AI, uh, that information is generally being pulled from an LLM, a large language model. So when you think about having a generative AI engine driving content production, it's pulling it again from history. So think about what I said to you about that, that um, truth and reconciliation lesson plan that was pulled from there. So because the, the information in the large language model may be factual, but it also may be dated. So you have to be very careful. Using AI, many people think about AI, and there's a lot of, I believe, misunderstanding about what AI is. AI is not a product. AI is a tool. So if you use it to aid speed, agility, uh, flexibility, then it can be a great positive to any business. But if people actually think that it's a product, and AI will ever replace a teacher, I'm yet to see an AI model ever comfort and be empathetic with a student. And I think that's the same in most businesses. You know, the, the role of the human being may change and may be supplemented and supported, but it won't go away. So, you know, a lot of the, lot of the dystopians in the world think that AI will cancel a lot of jobs. Of course it will, because there's some things humans do that they don't need to do but it will also create a lot of new jobs. So I, I think it depends how you look at it, and that's just my opinion. Um, but I, you know, we embrace AI, but we also know we can't change what we do in its, in its function, but it can aid flexibility and, and greater productivity. When we are dealing with technology and innovation, you will inevitably hear voices that say, it can't be done. Should we listen to these voices? Only if you want to be unsuccessful. You know, I, I believe anything can be done. There's a, a lot of people who've got to know me well over the last 40 years of being in different industries. And I've said this in all of them, that you can create your own reality. And if you actually focus on the destination rather than the journey, the journey is just detail and it will change and twist and turn but if you're purely focused on the destination and let's take edwin as an example i said i wanted edwin being used in every k-12 classroom around the world today we're in the predominance of canadian classrooms we're in nine other countries and it was the belief that you know if we built it right 
and it was always going to be iterative that people would do it. But there's a there's a piece of folklore here at Nelson that I got my executive team together on the very first day. And as I laid out what was then called Project Herschel, which is now Edwin, which was one platform for all your learning across all grades, with all disciplines, with multimodalities that kids would want to learn in. My executive team walked away, and I've been told this by a couple of them, that they've all left the company now. Um, But one of them told me, walking along the corridor, talking to another one, that one of our very most senior executives said, the new guy's like batshit crazy, you know that? He has no understanding whatsoever. But I was singular in my focus to create relevance to students and teachers. And we've done that. So I think anybody saying that you have to ignore technology or you can't do that um, has got a has got a problem. And if they don't have it now, they'll have it soon. Well, along these lines, Steve, you believe that a product is never finished, that you are always in beta mode. Is that frustrating or necessary to stay competitive? You know, Andrew, absolutely it is. If if you're if you're not better tomorrow than you are today, somebody's going to overtake you. So embracing dissatisfaction is a huge attribute. If you ever if you ever wallow in your own satisfaction that you've done something great and that's enough, you know you end up like Rim or Blackberry. You've got to always reinvent. You've also got to be very introspective. You've also got to embrace the dissatisfaction of that's great, yes, comma but we can do better. And that's what drives continuous improvement. You know, after 20 years in the automotive industry, there's a, a, a system and a, an understanding that was developed by a gentleman by the name of E.G. Toyota, the founder of Toyota Motor Company. And that's Kaizen, as it is in Japanese. And Kaizen is all about continuous imbru- improvement. And every time I hit a landmark of something that we want to achieve that my team have enabled, I say, that's great. What did you do for me today? Because that's obviously something we did yesterday. And when you get that philosophy embedded in the culture of a company, then you can truly do great things. And I've always said, being a CEO is just like being a great surfer. All I do is ride the wave. Everybody else creates the wave and does the magic. And you know that's my pleasure to be able to enjoy that. But it's also a realization that I know that everything we do is a result as a result of teamwork. But what I did do was instill that attitude of we can always do better. It doesn't mean we don't stop and take a moment to celebrate the wins and the achievements, but that's it. It's a moment. Now let's get our head down and get on with what we're going to do for tomorrow and next week and next month and next year and in a decade. And that's why Edwin exists. It was to create relevance and existence for the next century. So it's just a philosophy. Continuous improvement. Now, Steve, what is the importance of the fifth iteration of asking why? Huh. Well, you you never really get to the root cause without the five whys. When when somebody asks, you know, how did that happen? If it was a problem or something, you, the answer, the first answer you normally get is cursory, and then then you you take that answer and ask why. By the time you get to the fifth why you actually get to the real root cause of what happened, whether it be success or failure. So again, that's the that's the embracing of dissatisfaction. You have to get to the root cause to correct it. And I believe that not only in business, but I believe that in life. If you're unhappy today, why? Because I didn't sleep well. Why? 
because I had a busy mind. Why? Because I've got something I really need to do tomorrow that's really important. Why? Because if I don't, 500 people, 1,000 people, 25,000 people may lose their jobs. That's your root cause. So five whys is a great life lesson. I like that. Now, you love to recommend two books in particular, The Art of War and The Machine That Changed the World. Yeah. What are these books and why should we read them? The Art of War has been around a long time. I've, I've read it many times and I give those two books to many people, especially young professionals who join our business or people I may mentor from other businesses that I've been on boards of and so forth. And I actually believe that today with the speed of the revolutions that are going on, particularly now with this one, be the shortest ever with AI, you can actually draw from the art of war. You can actually draw historically from battle plans, wars, because being involved today takes singular focus, extreme strategy, and the tactics to support that strategy. And it I've always studied war strategies and I've always brought that into my my professional world. So that's the reason for the art of war. The machine that changed the world, I, I talked about Kaizen and I talked about the five whys. The improvement in technology, efficiency, safety in the automotive world since the beginning of the 1900s when Henry Ford started the, the first mass production line right through to the 60s and 70s uh, when the Japanese really mastered lean manufacturing processes. They too can be drawn into any assembly of any business. So yeah, we produce textbooks for years and years and it used to cost us millions and millions of dollars to produce one. And it would take us between two and four years from start to finish before from our starting the work on it to it reaching the classroom. Well, now we do that in a matter of weeks by producing it in bite-sized pieces that we call learning objects that we feed into Edwin every week, every day. And the life lessons, uh, coming back to the point, why do many of our competitors really do think that I'm crazy, is because I've changed the paradigm. Just because it's always been done a certain way doesn't mean that that's the best way. So drawing the lesson from those two books, I think, can be life lessons in, in personal or professional lives. Steve, I would like you to share with us your favorite life lesson quote and how you came to believe in it. My favorite life lesson quote is actually one that I termed myself. And I think that it's, it's been the backbone of the successes that I've enjoyed in three different industries, living on four different continents. And that is that you can create your own reality. If you are committed and fervent in your realization of the destination, that you can create anything you want. And there's no reason on God's earth that I'm the leader of the largest and oldest educational publishing business, technology business in the world here today. There's no reason for that at all. If you'd have mapped that out 40 years ago, there's no way that I would be asked by educational leaders around the world, what do I think is the future of education? I, I find that amazing. But the ability to be able to understand that if we didn't change, if we didn't build something that was relevant to students and teachers, we would go away. So it, that's the phrase. And I tell that to people all the time. I love mentoring young people and I tell them they can do anything. 
for goodness sake, if I can do it, they're certainly smarter than me. So they can do it too. So you've got to believe in your own reality and you've got to create your own reality. And as long as you believe in that every day, you'll be able to do anything you want in the world. And that's my true hope for leadership, particularly here in Canada, but around the world. If you look at the mess that's going on politically around the world, the void that needs filling is leadership and empathetic leadership. And I'm hopeful that what we're doing with Edwin will create empathetic leaders who can get us out of this mess because, you know, it's an old saying, but it was education that got us into this mess and it'll be education that gets us out of it. True enough. Empathetic leadership is definitely something we need more of. On that note, let's give a shout out to Jessica Mosher, who is now CEO at University of Toronto Press and has been a past guest on this podcast. Steve, she was a former colleague of yours at Nelson. That's right. Jessica actually started the very same day I did. And she was with me here for five years, was, uh, you know, my number two here, and had things worked out differently on the speed that education changed, she probably would have ended up being the CEO. Um, The one thing I got wrong with Edwin was the time it would take to get massive penetration. We have that now. But she had a great opportunity to leave and go over to uh, UTP. And apparently she's doing a heck of a job over there. She's a very talented, tough, strong lady who told me a lot about this business during our time working together. Excellent. Well, as we close up, Steve, what is next for Nelson? What is next for Steve Brown? Uh, Global domination for Nelson, I think, was always the target. Uh, We're in nine countries today. I'd like to see Edwin being used because I believe from a societal standpoint, it's great for the educational community and great for students, as well as giving teachers back the one thing that they sorely need, which is more time. Uh, So that's what's next for Nelson. We're going to keep going. Uh, We're looking at global expansions into new countries. We're, We're talking with a lot of people right now in governments in different countries around the world. So expansion globally and the betterment of the learning journey for students is what's for Nelson. What's next for Steve Brown? I have no idea. You know what? I love what I do every day. I'll be 59 in a few weeks. I like to be able to mentor and work with young managers and other boards and things like that to be able to teach them what not to do because of the mistakes I've made in the past. So if I can leave some sort of legacy behind in this industry or others, I'm happy to do that share a good glass of wine every now and again, enjoy my cooking and uh, whatever. Life's just a joy. Sharing lessons learned and enjoying Liverpool football. What could be better? Absolutely. Not much right now. Where can we best follow you, Steve? Are you on social media? And also, where can we best know what's happening at Nelson? I am on social media. Professionally, I'm on social media on X, what was Twitter, on at Nelson Steve B. To follow what we're doing with Edwin and at Nelson, we're on both platforms. We're uh, at Edwin Classroom and at Nelson Classroom, and we're very active. We've got well over 100,000 followers, I believe, and those are great areas you can see. To see what's going on with Edwin, you can go to um, at Edwin at and have a look at that product. But if it's anybody's listening to this from the educational market, I'm sure they already know about it. Well, clearly the only constant is change, and I want to thank you for your time today. It was great to meet you. Great to hear what you're up to, where you've been, where you're going, and of course, I want to wish you continued success. Thank you, Andrew. It was my pleasure to chat. Thank you. My pleasure to have you. 
And to the listeners, on behalf of Steve Brown, I am Andrew Applebaum, saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundal from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network.